It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, I am so excited to dive back into a study in the book of Ephesians. Over the last several years, I've been walking through the book verse by verse, just exposing the incredible reality of what Paul is saying about us being in Jesus Christ. And if you're interested in listening to any of those old studies, I'll put a link down in the show notes. In this particular like mini series, as we're walking through the book, we're looking at kind of the second half of chapter four. Now, as just a quick reminder of context, chapters one through three is all about our position in Jesus Christ. And as Paul moves into chapter four, he transitions and say, okay, now that you have your position in Christ, what does that look like practically lived out on the streets of your life? What does it look like to live in Christ down at your job, in your marriage, in your family, down, at, down in the church? What does it mean for us to practically live the Christian life? So as we're entering in, in chapter four, Again, he's in this practical section of living out the reality of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to look specifically in the study at verses 17 down through 19. So let me just read this, and just so it's fresh on our minds. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. It's a phenomenal passage. Paul is setting up a contrast of the life of a believer with the life of an unbeliever or a Gentile. And it's something that he's actually been doing all throughout the passage. As you go back and and look at verse 13 onward through the end of this chapter and even into chapter 5, what you begin to notice is that Paul is showing this contrast between who we once were as unbelievers and who we are now. In other words, he's talking about the old man versus the new man. And on the screen, I have a list of these kind of these contrasts where he bounces back and forth talking about the new versus the old. Now, we're not going to flesh that out because we've been walking through that in previous studies. But here is this simple concept. Our lives as believers are not to look like the world around us. In other words, we are no longer Gentiles. We are no longer unbelievers. Rather, we are Christians. And because we are Christians, the life of Christ is to mark our lives. In other words, whatever used to define our lives in the past, whatever that old behavior was, that that mindset of an unbeliever, that pagan Gentile world, that should no longer define our lives now as believers. So what Paul does then in the passage is as he's walking through, again, he's referencing back to our former way of living. And you could call it just this depth of depravity. I want to read this again. Listen to what Paul says about our former way of living. He says, therefore, I say in testifying the Lord that you no longer walk or live 
just as the Gentiles also walk or live. And then he describes it. He says, do you know how the unbelievers, the Gentiles live? They live in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What I want to do in this study is just break this down. Now, this is not the most exciting topic to talk about because we're talking about the former way of living. We're talking about our past life. But because Paul spends time and defines it, I think it's important to understand how he describes the life of an unbeliever. And so let me just walk through this passage and kind of illuminate or expose a little bit of what Paul is saying. He starts off with this idea, number one, of the futility of their mind. And in one sense, you can see this as like an umbrella statement covering everything that he's talking about. In other words, this idea of the futility of their mind is, is the mindset or the philosophy of how they are approaching everything. I, I love what the Renaissance New Testament commentary said about this phrase. They defined it as, as this, or they translated it this way. I love this statement. That you are to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the tragic stupidity of their philosophy. <laughs> Isn't that a great way of saying it? In other words, what Paul is arguing is that you are not to live like an unbeliever, that, that you are not to live in just that foolish, stupid philosophy that is so tragic that the unbelieving world is just living in. They don't even realize how foolish or how tragic it really is. And Paul says, hey, hey, stop, stop, stop. Don't live like them. Don't have that foolish philosophy that they're just perpetuating in their lives. So let me just summarize the concept this way, that we are not to walk after the pattern of the world, that, that we are not to be influenced by the perverse, devoid of truth mentality that the world has. Or perhaps better said, you may live in the world, but the world should not live in you. That there should be a stark separation between your life as a believer and the world around you. In other words, when the, un, when the unbelieving, onlooking world looks at your life, they should say, whoa, 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 there is something different in you. What is it? And probably they will persecute you for it. But the reality is it should be a clear difference. And I don't know about you, but the sad reality is as, as I look around the modern church today, there doesn't seem to be much difference between the unbelieving world and the Christian world. Now, I know there's exceptions, but as a whole, it is sad to me that the mindset, the philosophy, the lifestyle of the culture has invaded the body of Christ. And in one sense, there, there is no differentiating or uh, no difference between the two of them outside of, well, I go to church. Do you recognize that there should be a lifestyle? There should be a mindset. There should be a radical difference between our lives as believers. In other words, we should look like Jesus and the unbelieving world. So Paul, in almost an umbrella statement, says, hey, don't live in that same mindset of philosophy, in that tragic stupidity that the unbelievers live in. And then he starts getting, giving specifics. He says that they are darkened in their mind. The word mind is more than just what we think of mind in terms of like intellect or thinking. 
in the passage and in the context of how it's used throughout the Greek, it often relates to our feelings, our desires, our understanding. It's this idea of mind or spirit. It's, it's the way of thinking and feeling, or, or it's our disposition. And Paul says that that feeling, emotional, thought process, mind, disposition thing has become darkened, meaning it's been deprived of light. In other words, we should be walking in light. We should be having the clarity. And yet what, is, what has happened? It's all of our emotions, all of our thought processes, all of our understanding, all, all of our reasoning has actually grown dark. And then he says from that point that we are, al- or sorry, the unbelievers are alienated from the life of God. In other words, because they're walking in just the foolishness, the mindset of the world, because their mind has grown dark, it has actually caused a separation from the very life of God. That word alienated means to be estranged or shut out or to be a stranger. In other words, when I'm an unbeliever and I'm walking in sin and darkness, I've actually become a stranger. I've been pushed aside from the very life of God. And it's interesting in in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are predominantly two different kinds of life that show up in the New Testament. One is the word bios, which is where we get the word biology. It's like the physical life kind of stuff. And the other one is zoe, which is, is what is often used to talk about eternal life. Jesus says, you know, I've come that you might have not biology life, not the physical flesh stuff, but the life of God. And maybe one way to think about this is just as an illustration uh, I love the illustration of like a an electrical cord. In other words, I have a lamp and I take the electrical cord and I plug it into the outlet. And the cord is the bios. It's the physical thing. But there is something going through that physical life that's actually animating and giving the energy to turn on the light. That would be, in one sense, the zoe. We all have bios. And so it's not that, oh, God's come to give us bios. (laughs) We already have bios, but our spirit is dead. And when I walk in sin and I walk in unrighteousness, then what has happened is I'm actually estranged. I'm a stranger to that Zoe, that, that life of God that is to flow through this bios called me. So think about this. Paul says in this umbrella statement that the unbelieving world is living in this foolish, tragic mindset and philosophy, that, that, that their hearts have grown dark. And because of that, they've been estranged. They, they've been a stranger to the very life of God. Well, he continues and gives a few other clarifying statements. He says that they have an ignorance. Now, it's interesting when you look at this idea of ignorance, there's really three ways that you can understand this idea. One, you could see this in the way it's used contextually, is that you didn't realize what you were doing was sin. In other words, I'm an unbeliever. Hey, I was living in ignorance. I had no idea what I was doing was sin. Another option to understand this concept of ignorance is it's an ignorance where you no no longer realize you are sinning. In other words, your conscience has been so seared, you so refused the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you now live in this callousness and now you don't even care if you're sinning. And in that sense, you're living in an ignorance. Or third, it's a deliberate ignorance, meaning it's a willful blindness. Maybe as a quick story, of, as an illustration, uh, my brother was renowned for getting into trouble. And my mother, 
has all these great stories uh, where, you know, uh, this my favorite story. Uh, Tyler is my brother's name. Uh, he was a little tot. He was a little kid. And my mom went out to the front yard and took him by the hand and went over to the, the fence on this side of the house and said, you see this fence? You don't cross this fence. She took him to the other side of, the, of our little house and, and said, you see this fence? Don't cross this fence and you will not get into the street. And so she let him play in the front yard and she goes in the house and she's watching him from the window. And as my mother says, do you know what that little bugger did? <laughs> he walks over to the fence, closes his eyes, puts his hands over his eyes and just starts walking. And so she runs out and says, Tyler, did I not tell you? Don't go past that fence. And he says, I didn't see the fence. <laughs> you know? In that sense, that, that's kind of what's happening in the passage as, as an option for this idea of ignorance, where it is a willful decision to, to be ignorant. Like, I didn't see it. I didn't realize it was sin. And it's fascinating that when Paul says that they're walking in ignorance, it's because contextually, because of the hardness of their hearts. So it seems then, or it appears that they are willfully choosing blindness, blindness and ignorance so that they can live in sin. That, that the un, unbelieving world is doing a very similar thing to what my brother did when he was a little kid, where he knew what was right. He knew what he was supposed to do. And yet almost as a willful blindness, he covers his eyes and just says, all right, I'm not going to see it. And if I don't see it, I can do what I want to do. And he just marches on past the fence. Do you realize that's what the unbelieving world is doing? The Bible says that none of us are without excuse, that, that God has written his law upon our heart. And so therefore, if I'm walking in ignorance, it's not because well, I just didn't know. Yeah, there's times where God reveals truth. And there's things, you know, as you get into scripture, where you're like, wow, I didn't realize that what I was doing was wrong. And I need to repent of that. That's true. But Paul says that the unbelieving world, he knows there's something going on in them, that they know what they should be doing. And yet they're willfully walking in a blindness and an ignorance. Well, Paul continues and says, not only that, but there is a hardness or a blindness of their heart. That, that word for hardness, it means a covering with a callus. In other words, you work really hard, you get a callus. It's that kind of an idea. There's a hardness that takes place. Or it's a dull perception. Or it has this idea of it's the mind of one that has been blunted or walking in stubbornness. Really interesting, that Greek word for hardness or that blindness idea, it comes from this root word, uh, which has this idea of petrified or turning to stone. And listen to what one scholar said about this. I thought it was really fascinating. He said that this word for hardness or blindness originally meant a stone that was harder than marble. It came to have certain medical uses. It was used for chalk stone, which can form in the joints and completely paralyze action. It was used of the callus that forms where a bone has been broken and reset, a callus which is harder than the bone itself. Finally, the word came to mean the loss of all power of sensation. It described something which had become so hardened, so petrified, that it had no power to fill it all. Do you know what? Paul is saying, he says, look, their hearts have grown callous that because of their willful sin, because they've been walking in sin and they, they, their, their conscience is seared, there is a callousness. There's a petrifying of their heart that has taken place. 
And I don't know about you, but I know a lot of unbelievers who have just so lived in their sin that it's like their hearts are so hardened. They're, 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 they're petrified to the things of God, that they've, that they've grown cold and callous. Do you realize that sin leads to blindness, a hardening of the heart? In other words, when any of us walk in sin, when any of us choose unrighteousness, what it begins to do is it causes that darkness of our heart and begins to put a callus on our soul so that we no longer actually care what God thinks. Rather, we're living in this sinful propensity that we just, we don't even recognize anymore. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed this, but sin has an allurement where, or I should say, maybe a Maybe allurement is not the right term. There is an allurement. But as I follow in that allurement, there becomes a dullness where the sin just doesn't satisfy anymore, which means I got to go into greater and greater measures of sin. In other words, I get harder and I'm less resistant or I'm less responsive to the Spirit of God. There's this great Ethiopian proverb that says that evil, or may I put the word sin, it enters like a needle, but it spreads like an oak tree. In other words, a lot of times we, we justify, well, it's not that big of a sin. It's just this little tiny sin. And yet what starts as a little needle prick actually begins to fester and grow, as the Ethiopian proverb says, like an oak tree, and it just takes over. Uh, when I was a little kid, there was this, uh, I remember those cassette tapes, if you're any of you are that old. But there's this cassette tape I had of this Christian group that came through and sang at our church. And there's a song called Pebble in a shoe. And I just want to give you a line from that because I just, I really love the imagery. This is what the song said. It started as a small thing. Speaking of sin, a pebble in the shoe, it grew into a boulder crushing down you. It started as a notion knocking at the heart. It grew into disaster, tearing you apart. It started as a needle pricking at the skin, grew into a dagger Digging deep in. It started as a small thought, well, harmless at the time, became an obsession, filling up the mind. Do you recognize that that is how sin works? A lot of times we, we justify, well, it's just the little things. And yet over time, our hearts have grown dark. We're estranged from God and we've grown callous and hard and petrified in our soul because we have chosen this willful ignorance and blindness to live in junk. Well, Paul continues and again says, having become callous, that, that word callous means past feeling or a lack of concern or care. It's interesting in the passage, it has this idea of having got over the pain. In other words, okay, here's my heart is now petrified. So my heart has grown darkened and now I'm, I've, I've become callous to the very things of God. And I've got over the pain of that, of that conscience prick that the Holy Spirit gives us. In other words, I just don't care anymore. I, I, don't, I don't feel like what I just did was wrong. And it is so easy when we, when we live in sin to come to the point where we're just like, well, I, don't, I no longer feel conviction. That's actually a very scary, dangerous sign. Well, listen to what one scholar said about this idea, about uh, callousness. He, he said it means to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. While the perfect tense, it's, it's in the perfect tense, it describes a state of affairs that led to or else accompanied the loss of all self-control. In other words, I've gotten to the point where I have no control 
overdoing this. I, I just, I just have to do it. I don't even have a, I don't have a grid. It's just, it presents itself. I always give in and I've lost the capacity for shame or embarrassment. In other words, I just don't care what you think about my sin anymore. And sadly that in our modern day, not only describes the unbelieving world, it's describing a lot of the people in the church that again, we're, we so look like the culture around us. And in fact, we don't even care that, that we don't care the fact that we're living in sin and the fact that, well, I, yeah, what's the big deal with this? And there's no more shame or embarrassment for the fact that here's a Christian who calls himself a believer and yet is living in defiant rebellion to God and, and his word. Well, all of this is heightened to the point at the end of the passage where Paul says that they've given themselves over, which is this idea of a willingness to hand over, to surrender, to give up power or to deliver. In other words, they've taken themselves and they've literally put themselves and they've surrendered themselves onto something that they've said, here, here, I'm delivering myself unto this. Well, what is it that they're delivering themselves to? Paul gives two things. One he says to sensuality, some translations say lewdness, but that word in Greek means an unbridled lust. It's an excess. It's a licentiousness. It's a wantonness. It's an outrageousness. It's a shamelessness or an insolence. In other words, it's this, it's this idea of being self-abandoned, unrestrained, sinful, sinful indulgence. And the idea in the Greek is the concept of like anything goes. It's, it's a total permissiveness. Uh, we say stuff in our culture like, well, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's this idea that, hey, you you can give yourself over to anything you want in Vegas and, hey, no one's going to know about it. It's it's all okay. It's it's a self-abandonment. You, you can lose all of your reasoning because why? I'm in Vegas. Paul says that's what the unbelieving world has done to sensuality, that, that they've just thrown themselves into sin and they've just said, ah, oh, take me. I've delivered myself unto sin. Do whatever you want with me. Not only have they delivered themselves unto the sensuality or the lewdness, Paul says, but they've also delivered themselves to the practice of every kind of impurity. That word practice means an exertion of work or pursuit. It's a labor that is marked by exertion or habit. In other words, it's a striving for something. It's a business. It's a labor or it's a work. So think about this. Paul says that the unbelievers have literally handed themselves over to the working, to the labor, to the business of every kind of impurity. And that word, every kind of impurity, uh, it's used especially for sexual sin, but it includes all immoral, riotous, and excessive living. It's this idea of what I want, how I want, when I want it. So again, get this, get the flow of what Paul is saying. He says in this umbrella statement, the unbelieving world just is, has this futile, stupid mindset, philosophy of, of, of just that selfishness, of that corrupted nature that we are born with. That their hearts have grown dark and they, they've just, they're, in fact, they've grown callous. Their, their hearts have become petrified by the reality of sin. So much so that they've really taken themselves and handed themselves over so that they could live in sensuality and every kind of sin. In fact, They've actually gone into labor, this business or a work to just indulge themselves in every kind of, of sexuality or impurity or, or, or immoral living. And then to top that off, Paul says, and that's done with greediness. In other words, it's not just like, well, I did it once. 
but rather there's a consumption for more and more. That idea of greediness, again, is this idea of a greedy desire to have more or a continual lust for more. And interesting, as you go back into the old Greek, the way that the Greeks would use this word was as an arrogant greediness. In other words, that there's this pressure that I, I just can't control myself, that there is this overwhelming consumption. I just have to have it kind of an idea. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a sad reality of the unbelieving world. And Paul says, hey, don't miss this. Paul says that defined our lives before Christ, that all of us were wrapped up in this, that, that none of us have an excuse. We were all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That, that the reality is, is we've all given ourselves over to sin. All of us have become hardened of hearts. All of us have grown darkened in our minds. All of us have lived according to this tragic, foolish philosophy of selfishness and sin. In fact, we've been greedy for it, as Paul says. So this is not just a giving over to sin. And Paul says there's this internal pressure, a compulsion for more sin. And we've lived in this mentality where anything goes. It's an arrogant greediness and desire for the pervasiveness of sin, not caring about consequences, and we eventually lack a care for how it is perceived. One scholar said it this way, the pagan way of life was characterized by the insatiable desire to participate in more and more forms of immorality. Ultimately, it becomes a vicious cycle because new perversions must be sought to replace the old. And that, that, is, that is the way the world is living, isn't it? And Paul says, can I remind you what God has brought you from? Can I remind you of your former way of living? Which means none of this should define our lives now. That the reality is, is, is that we are a new creature, a creation in Christ Jesus, and the former ways have passed away. These things should not define our lives. We, we should not live in the mindset of the world. We should not live in the callous, petrified heart of sin. We should not have we should not give ourselves over, deliver ourselves over to sensuality or impurity with any form of greediness. Rather, we are to look like Jesus Christ. This idea shows up all over the scriptures. In Romans chapter one, Paul says this, for even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and this is what he says in verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Do you know what humanity has done? Light has presented itself, but rather than turning to the light, light has become offensive. Almost like if you've ever gone camping uh, in, in, your, in the middle of you know, the dark and someone comes up to you, not that you should do this, uh, but someone comes up to you with a flashlight and just shines it right in your face. Light actually can be offensive. <laughs> that when your eyes have adjusted to the dark and you're like in the dark, light actually becomes painful. It becomes convicting. It, be, it becomes painful. 
And Jesus says, this is the judgment. I have come into the world as light. But because humanity's deeds were evil, they actually chose to love and cling to. They refused to let go of their deeds of darkness of sin, even though there's an opportunity for life. Do you recognize that this former way of living, none of us has, none of us can get out of this. All of us are with sin. All this defines every single one of us. And yet there's incredible news in the passage. In Ephesians chapter two, we we went this, we, we walked through this in a previous study. But in Ephesians chapter two, Paul again is contrasting the former way of living with the reality of Christ. And this is what he says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world. In other words, it's that foolish philosophy of the world again. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul says, hey, look, look, this is what your life was. You were living in this horrible reality of just the world and sin and selfishness. And then in verse four, he gives this incredible statement, perhaps two of the most powerful words in all of scripture. Paul says, but God, that even though I was living according to the mindset of the world, even though I was living in the lifestyle of sin, but God, God stepped in and rescued. God made a way for life. God rescued. In fact, you see that even here in our passage in Ephesians chapter four. Again, let me read you this whole thing. He says, therefore, this I say, and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, but, and that is an incredibly redeeming word, but though this used to describe you, though you used to live this way, though this used to be your normal lifestyle and philosophy and, 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 uh, the, the propensity of sin in your life, Paul says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Now, in the upcoming studies, we're going to be walking through, what does that mean for us to learn Christ? It's an incredibly powerful reality that we all need to live in as believers. But can I just ask you a question? As we were walking through what Paul says is the formal way of living, did any of this describe your life? Is there any callousness in your soul? Has there, has there been any darkness that has creeped in? Is there anything that you're justifying? Well, it's just a little, little tiny sin. It's just a little needle prick. Is there anything that you're living according to that foolish mindset and philosophy of the world? Is, have you given yourselves over to any form of impurity or sensuality or immorality? Because the reality is, is that is not how we are to live as Christians. And if any of those things mark our lives, there is great news. But God, can I encourage you, if, if, if any of this shows up in your life, 
can I encourage you to find yourself at the foot of the cross? Throw yourself upon his mercy and his grace. Repent and ask for his forgiveness and say, God, I, I have been tarnished and stained by the world. And yet I am to be a Christian. So would you allow God to purify, refine, to sanctify your life so that you no longer look and think and act like the world? Rather, as we're going to talk about in the next study, you find yourself looking, acting, talking like Jesus because we are to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Man, that is my desire for you. And I just would love to pray just as we end this in, in, in this study, that this would be the reality of our lives, that Jesus would mark our lives, not the former way of living. So join me in prayer. Uh, Jesus, we do just thank you that we have hope, that we have mercy and grace in our time of need. And Lord, I just pray that, that if any of us have a taint of sin, a taint of the world philosophy, a taint of darkness, a taint of, of immorality or sensuality or greediness. Lord, would you bring deep conviction through your spirit? Would you purge and purify? Would you rescue and would you redeem? Would you save and would you sanctify the reality of our hearts and our minds so that we would not look like the world, that our former way of living would truly be a former way of living, that it would no longer mark or define how we live from this point forward. Lord, may we live in a continual state of surrender, dependence, abiding in you, because the only way that we can live the Christian life is we need you. Lord, thank you that we no longer have to live like we used to. And thank you that we no longer have to live like the world around us. So Lord, thank you for every possibility to look like Jesus. And Lord, we do as we, as we enter into this mini series of studies in Ephesians 4, would you make Jesus the reality of our lives? And would you remove anything and everything in our lives that doesn't look like you? We love you, Jesus. We just give you all the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.